Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Do you know mm. that at itsthereal.com slash shop, we have brand new It's The Real t-shirts available right now? Wait, we do? Did you know that? Is it a problem that I did not know? Like, I feel I like think, there's a problem in our, our company. I th- I'm I just think, so checked out. I think there is a huge problem that you don't know. You should go on your brand new iPhone right now mm-hmm. and go to itsthereal.com slash shop and go check out our selection. But, you know, we always do say t-shirt sales and, and everything that people buy from our website, that really helps the company. That is true. I'm just using the money for my new iPhone. I get it. I get it, Jeff. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not mad at it. Mm-hmm. This is um, like when, I respect uh, when like Joe Osteen has like a private jet. And it's like, wait, where did all my money go from the collection plate? Yeah. It goes to a private jet. Mine is going to an iPhone 11. Well, shout out to you, Jeff. I appreciate the transparency mm-hmm. and congratulations on all your new ventures. But in well, the meantime... that being said, yes. I can afford an iPhone 11, but I can't afford my <laughs> rent. So, you know, choices. Yeah. But here's, here's why I bring it up, is because we've been trying to get our t-shirts and our presence, our larger presence, in every one of the 50 states of the United States of America. Oh, we're like, uh, what, 40 states in? Something like that. I'll tell you this. Uh-huh. Alaska, Arkansas, Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Louisiana, Maine, Missouri, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Vermont. That's more than 10. What is that? not bought t-shirts yet fuck them but oh but jeff there's there's hope yet because a couple days ago i was like you know what today's the day we're gonna get one of the dakotas to buy our t-shirt and we spent all day did we not well you did all all yeah you've checked out yeah all day saying come on south dakota there's got to be someone out there who's interested in buying a shirt someone who listens to our podcast somebody who is in support of what we do over here in new york yes and it it took all day but there are two there there's one or two people out in south dakota (laughs) i thought as many as five well i'll say this we have our newsletter yes and there is someone who signed up for it named aj dixon okay and then there's another email yes from alex dixon but i don't know if they're the same person or if they are in fact siblings well i will say that that somebody one of the dixons one of the dixons maybe one in the same i think it's alex but alex might be aj bought a t-shirt at the end of the day and i promise you this I was so excited. We had finished up a podcast that we were recording. I checked my email. I saw the order come in. Our guy, Tommy, Boney Starks on Twitter and uh, Tommy.jpg on Instagram, who, by the way, just celebrated a birthday. His birthday. Ha- yes. Happy birthday to Tommy. He's our photographer here. And he pumped his fist because he was excited. We made it a mission to get a t-shirt sold, to ship it out to South Dakota. Well, that being said. Yes. Alchemist. Is in South Dakota right now. He did tweet us and say, no joke, I'm here. And by the way, I did see a video where Bison were crossing in front of his car. Yes. Didn't buy a t-shirt. No. So Alchemist is out. Okay. Done with Alchemist. We did have a blacklist. We were like, listen, all of these cities, Sioux Falls. Yeah. And and whatever other cities are in South Dakota. We were going to ban them. We were going to say, we're never going to step foot in there. Mm -hmm. We're not even going to acknowledge those, those cities anymore. Yep. That, that still is going on. No. Oh, no, no, because, because... Someone from Sioux Falls, Alex or AJ or... Whatever, whichever Dixon... <laughs> yeah, he bought a t-shirt. Yeah. Shout out to him. Shout out to South Dakota on the whole. We're back on board with you guys. We're excited that you're on board with us. But North Dakota's out. Yeah, done. Done. For the record, fuck North Dakota. 
Bismarck. Oh, yeah. Wherever. Wherever. Anybody who's in the state limits of North Dakota and you have not bought a t-shirt from us. Which, by the way, our dad was born there. No, our dad was born in South Dakota. Our dad was born in South Dakota. It's good to take a stand, whatever you feel and whatever the facts are. How dare you? By the way, I'm so glad that dad was not born in North Dakota. Yeah, tell him how you really feel. <laughs> because I know... This family... Yeah, this family is way too good for North Dakota. <laughs> I would never... By the way, if anybody buys a t-shirt, I will reverse very quickly. That's right. Like, immediately. I would never... Go to North Dakota. Yeah. Just I, I've played French Montana in Montana. For the record. I drove three hours out of the way to drive to to I I drove three hours Hold on, Jeff. Did some no. I swear to God. If somebody from North Dakota just bought a t shirt, I'm gonna actually like burn this place down. No. In excitement? Yeah. <laughs> no. Montana Montana, I was gonna say, has not bought a shirt either. <laughs> Our dad was born in South Dakota. He would never Drive three hours. <laughs> Drive three hours out of the way to play French Montana in Montana, as I did. I also played French Montana in France. Has anybody from France played? I don't. I don't. Has think, anybody from France bought a T-shirt? I don't think so. I don't think so. Banned. There are so many places that are banned. I only want to go. I only to want to go to that places that bought T-shirts. T-shirts. Shout out to everybody who's gone to itstherealcom slash shop. Shout out to everyone who helps support this business, helps keep us going. It honestly is a pirate ship that we're trying to keep afloat. And we truly appreciate everybody who, you know, feels like we're worthy to uh, represent by wearing a t-shirt on your back. Shout out to all you guys. Itstherealcom slash shop. buy, ready? Yes. Buy 100 t-shirts. Yes. And I can afford a new iPhone. I love that. Jeff, who's on the podcast today? On the podcast today is Sophia Chang. Sophia Chang. Man, hell of a career. Hell of a woman. And she talks hell of ab- a life. Talks about her entire life in her new book, Baddest Bitch in the Room. It's actually an audio book, and it is only available on audible.com. She did this in conjunction with... Reese Witherspoon. Yo, wasn't expecting that. No. So, <laughs> Sophia Chang, maybe you know the name from her music industry stuff. And why not? She's worked with everyone from all of Wu-Tang, basically, especially RZA and Jizza and Ghostface and ODB and Raekwon and, you know, all of Yeah, Wu-Tang. I'm waiting for you to not... Nem- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also worked with Raphael Sadiq. She's worked with... Joey Badass and the Pro Era label. Man, um, she was at Jive when Tribe was there and UGK was there and she was best friends with Chris Lighty, and she just was a trailblazer, is a trailblazer, has lived an incredible life. Her stories about being a mother, her stories about her relationships, her stories about being a Korean woman in the music industry from Vancouver, British Columbia, and making it to this point right now are unreal, but very real, actually. Yeah. Go check out her story, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, available on audible.com. Can I just say, as far as voices go, great voice. Great voice. She, uh, you know, you'll hear it in a moment here on the podcast. Guys, The Baddest Bitch in the Room is available on 926. That's this Thursday, audible.com. Go check that out. Download it and support a real one, Sophia Chang. Jeff, when do you want to get into it? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Kicking Knowledge, a.k.a. Soccer Practice. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Making Counterfeit Red, a.k.a. Uh, one more time. Yeah. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Kicking Knowledge, a.k.a. Soccer Class. 
Yo, what up? It's Jeff, aka Making Counterfeit Bread, aka. Uh, sorry. Yo, what up? It's Eric, aka Kicking Knowledge, aka Soccer Class. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, aka Making Counterfeit Bread, aka Working in Subway. There you go. Hello, world. My <laughs> name is Sophia Chang, and I'm the baddest bitch in the room. Yeah, Ooh. and this is your third favorite podcast to waste time with. It's the real. Sophia, what's happening? Hello, you guys. Oh, we're so happy not only to have you up here to tell your story, but a fellow Upper West Sider for a very long time. Welcome back. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, I lived up here. I was in like four or five different apartments up here. Love it. We ours. Um, you were in Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We um. Uh, not many Upper West Siders come back and uh, appear on the podcast. Dave from Chromio uh, spent time at Columbia University, um, and that might have been it. I no, think. we've had Bodega Bams. We've oh, yeah, had, Bodega Bams. Smoked yeah. Dizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not many. Peter yeah. Rosenberg. All right, so we're getting more and more. But anyway, it's very special to have. I made the trek. It's well worth it. I'm exactly. Glad to be here. Uh, what do you love about the Upper West Side? Quiet. I think I love that it's quiet. There are a lot of families, right? You guys see lots of strollers and stuff like that. I really like just kind of the chill energy of the Upper West Side. I live in the Lower East Side. Now. Now, right. Which um, is not quiet. <laughs> well, luckily, my part of it is really quiet, but I am not quiet adjacent. So I live right by the Williamsburg Bridge. Um, but yes, if you get up to kind of like Norfolk and Rivington and stuff like that where it's crazy... That part of it I don't like, but I love my part because it actually kind of feels a little bit like the Upper West Side. Mm. You've been in New York for quite a while, but you're not originally from here. No, that's right. You're from? I am born and raised in Vancouver. Yeah. Canada. So (laughs) what was it like growing up in Vancouver? It was, I mean, Vancouver, have you guys been there? No, no but I've seen it in movies. There you go, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's Posing like, as New York. Yeah, very yeah. much like New York, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Vancouver is beautiful. I mean, it's a coastal city. You're right on the Pacific Ocean. You have mountains, ocean, beaches, forests. It's, you know, when you, if and when you have children, I always recommend to people to take their kids out there, especially if they've been raised in urban settings, because you get a real sense of nature and how stunning and how magnificent it can be. Um, so that's it in terms of geography and topography. <laughs> but, you know, I'm Korean. I was the child of Korean immigrants. I was a yellow girl growing up in a white world, essentially. So... While I had a lovely lower middle class, solid life, comfortable that way, I was still very much on the margins. And, you know, I was born in 65. So that means that, you know, in 1970, I'm in kindergarten. And then through the 70s, I'm in lower and middle school. And people at that time flat out would say chink, jap, and gook. So it's not even like, anything was codified at the time, right? Did they so, get hired for SNL later on? Or exactly. How does that exactly. work? <laughs> exactly. I was just making a joke. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it was, it, there was never a doubt to me that I was other. So that's what it was like. But I was also a really confident kid from when I was very, very young. And it didn't, um, it didn't, burden me in the same way that I think it could many, many other people. Who gave you that confidence? That's a really good question. Um, Or what? I think that part of it was that, you know, my mother's from North Korea, my father's from South Korea, God rest his soul. Again, they're immigrants. English is not their first language. This was not a generation of parents that were like, I love you. 
you're the brightest, you can do anything you want. That's not how Asian immigrant parents talk. <laughs> you know, That's just not culturally what we did. So it wasn't necessarily from any um, explicit messaging that I got from my parents. I think that part of it was that I knew from really young that I was really fucking smart. <laughs> and so what I understood was, okay, Sophia, so you don't fit into the dominant stereotype of what is beautiful and what is powerful, right? So what I knew, and obviously I didn't have that language when I was young, but what I, again, what I knew was that I lived outside, right? That I lived on the margins, that I was other, that I was belittled, right? And so how do I make up for that? How do I compensate? Well, I know that I'm really fucking smart. And I developed an amazing sense of style from very, very young. And so, and I was super, super popular because I have a winsome personality and I have a great sense of humor. So I think all of these things, I understood they were tools in my toolbox and I used them to my advantage. And so I was teacher's pet. I was the smartest in the class. I was the best dressed. I was the most popular, all of those kinds of things. So those but were a lot the of elements those that would buttress. Can you know? be like opposing you know what I'm saying? Like, it could be easy to be the teacher's pet, but also not the most popular. That's mm -hmm. right. No, that's absolutely right. I think that being teacher's pet had to be, for me, in order to maintain my popularity, had to be coupled with me being able to, you know, get along also really well with the students as opposed to... And your to, parents. And my parents, exactly. As opposed yeah. to the annoying girl that's always putting <laughs> her hand up and like, I got it right. <laughs> you know, that girl. What kind of relationship did you and your brother have? My brother, he saw Chang, three years older than me and then 10 smartest people I know. He, um, it was really competitive. I don't know if you, if there's a sibling rivalry between you guys. Oh no, we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was definitely a rivalry between my brother and I, but that was really on my part. I don't, think that my brother ever felt competitive with me, but he's my older brother. Mm -hmm. You know, we go to the same school, we go to the same high school, then we same go to teachers? the same That's right, same yeah. teachers, we go to the same university. So every time, you know, and, and not big, big, big institutions, right? Like my daughter goes to Brooklyn Tech, 6,000 kids. It's highly likely that she and her older brother, who also went there, are not going to encounter the same teachers. But my brother and I went to small schools, so everybody... All of the teachers knew my brother and knew how smart he was. So I always kind of felt like I was in his intellectual shadow that way. Um, he teased me to no end, you know, as I think older brothers are wont to do. But, you know, but we had a good relationship. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I hated my brother. Sure, there were times when I despised him, mm -hmm. you know, and him, me, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, but we're really, really close now. How did you express your creativity as a as a young girl in Vancouver, British Columbia? That's an interesting question. So when I was young, I wanted to be a fashion designer. And I used to draw a lot. I wasn't particularly talented, but I used to draw a lot. And I used to draw models. And I used to make these uh, like cardboard cutout models. And then this is so a relic of the past. I don't even know if they do this anymore. But you could get these kind of cardboard cutout models. And then you could get these clothes that had these little tabs. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, paper dolls. dolls. Them. Yeah. And I would actually make, oh, they're called paper dolls. Thank yeah. you. There's a term for that. So <laughs> yeah. um, and I would make my own. And I would, you know, I would pour through the issues, uh, pages of Vogue magazine, and I would look at the looks, and then I would make them, and I would make the little shoes and everything. So that was definitely one of my creative outlets, probably my only one. I mean, I'm the child of Korean immigrants, so I took piano. Uh, again, I was not any good at it. 
Um, I wasn't. I'm not. I'm not musically talented, but I did used. I did used to draw, and I was okay at that. So that was my outlet. So you felt like you were um, separate from like maybe your classmates. But did you feel like in a city like Vancouver, you were separate from like the modern, you know, cities of New York or Los Angeles? You mean, did I have an awareness of Vancouver being a smaller city, so uh-huh. to speak? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and certainly more the older that I got, right? And started to have more exposure to different movies and stuff like that. You know, watching, I remember seeing Woody Allen movies, seeing Annie Hall and seeing Manhattan and you know, just how the loving treatment of New York City. Yeah. You know, it's Gershwin, it's Rhapsody <laughs> in Blue, it's black and white, it's fireworks over a Central Park, you know, that kind of thing. And I, rem- I, th- I think that probably those Woody Allen movies were my first exposure to like, oh, the magic of New York City. Yeah. You know, because I'm sure I saw New York represented in other movies, but I don't think I was thinking of, about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see movies and recognize Vancouver in them? Not then. Because that's when the, I guess, tax stuff yeah, that, sort of that like came happened, later. Uh, yeah, much, much, much later. Um, so I left in 87, and I don't think the tax break started happening until after I had left. But now when I see it, I'm like, oh my yeah. God, that's home. <laughs> like I see car commercials shot up there, you know, kind of, I feel like anything that's shot on a winding mountain road, <laughs> you know, Vancouver. it's Vancouver <laughs> with ocean in the background and beautiful conifer, you know, like forest and stuff like that. It looks like Vancouver. When did you first start traveling? So I first started traveling with my parents and my brother, just family road trips. You know, we would drive across country, we would drive across Canada, we would go to Banff and Calgary and all the way to Toronto and Quebec and Montreal. And then we also made a trip down to LA all in the car because we couldn't afford plane tickets. Um, But as, um, as by myself or with my friends, not with my parents, my first trip was, I think, probably Europe when, um, no, I actually think the first trip, I, I went to New York before, I came to New York before I went to Europe, yeah, which was um, in my junior year of university. And you felt how when you stepped off that plane? Uh, I mean, you know, by the time I came to New York, I had already heard the message by Grandmaster Flash <laughs> and the Furious Five, so I already had this kind of titillating anticipation of what the city would be like. And, you know, Jizz always taught me that people emit vibrations and frequencies and energy. And I think that anybody that's been to New York City, if you're in tune to it, the energy here is tremendous. So I felt that as soon as I got off the plane. And I also felt how incredibly diametrically opposed it was to Vancouver. But you still had to go back at some point. I did. I went, you know, so I was only here for maybe a week or yeah. whatever, and I had to go back. And then I went to Paris, and Paris is beautiful and everything, but it's filled with French people, right? <laughs> so I... <laughs> pardonnez-moi. So I knew Paris that... Paris is beautiful and everything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, New York absolutely felt like home. I want to talk about the importance of hearing the message. Mm. How did you first hear the song, and and what did you get from it? So the first time I heard the song, there was this Greek kid in my high school named Ray. It was my senior year of high school, and he always used to bring new records. And so we were in the lunchroom one day, and he 
pulls out this record and I'm going, oh God, what is that? And you know, back in the day, because we all listened to vinyl, we were really familiar with all of the labels. We knew what all the labels looked like, right? RKO was big then because of disco and yeah, Warner Brothers and Atlantic and everything. And then I see this label, it's light blue and it's got this multicolored snake on it. I'm thinking, gosh, <laughs> what is this? And he puts it on and you know, the synth notes are one thing and they're, you know, they kind of catch me off guard, but the beat, I'd never heard a beat like that. So I grew up in Vancouver. I wasn't raised on a tradition of R&B. So I wasn't really prepared for this in the way that you guys might've been growing up in New York, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So hearing the song, I mean, it just was like a blow to the solar plexus in the best way. You know, I really, really love dancing. I've always really loved dancing since I was very, very little. And so I had this almost um, kind of involuntary response to it that was almost visceral, you know? And then there are the lyrics. And so this, you know, broken glass everywhere, it's just this very cinematic song that hits you at so many levels and it really gave me um, a sense of this other world, which I thought was really fascinating. And again, because it was so cinematic. You know, you watch Mean Streets, you watch Taxi Driver and stuff like that, and Scorsese does this amazing job of illustrating for you what Dirty New York is. And then I found that the message did that as well. But you know, the other thing that the message did was, Again, growing up in Vancouver, where I have no exposure to black or brown people, meaning um, brown Latinx as opposed to brown South Asian, um, the only exposure I have to black folks is through media. Well, when, you're, when the only time you see black people is on screen, it's all through the white male gaze. Right. Right? It's the only time I saw myself on screen was all through the white male gaze. And so then that gets, and again, remember I grew up in the 70s, that gets incredibly narrowly defined, right, to tropes and stereotypes. So I, you know, the message felt like the first time I heard a black story told by a black voice. Mm. It was also the first time I heard a person of color talking about their own story. Mm. Because I wasn't, you know, there were no Korean dramas when I was a kid. I wasn't really watching, you know, I wasn't watching anything like that. Like maybe I'd seen Kurosawa, but that was all period stuff, right? So I'm, I, I don't have any metric. I don't have any framework for, oh, what is it like for people of color to tell their own stories? Well, and so I, I listened to your, your audio book mm -hmm. available on audible.com only, by the way. Um, and you tell the story about looking into the mirror <laughs> and seeing yourself. Yes. So I was a huge fan of the Partridge family and the Brady Bunch and, as I said, Vogue magazine. And I All think... All proud, colored <laughs> yes, families. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Telling exactly. their story. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I remember just thinking that it was so idyllic. You know, these, these worlds were so idyllic, as preposterous as the premises were. And I think that, uh, and I know from anecdotal evidence and conversations I've had with friends that I'm not unique in this experience, that, you know, in this desperate desire to assimilate, you, you know, I say it in my memoir, I just wanted to be white. And so I'm watching these shows and I'm upstairs in my room and I'm playing the keyboards on my bed and I look in the mirror and I'm fully expecting to see a white face and then I see mine. 
And it's kind of amazing that I thought that I was going to see a white face. I wake up and I looked at myself every morning. I knew very, very well (laughs) that I'm not white. But in that, in that wish, you know, to be something other than other, in other words, to be in the center as opposed to the margins. Yeah. There are a lot of ways that your mind can fuck with you. And that was a really stunning moment for Mm. me. When you came to New York, and a lot of people romanticize dirty New York, you know, rough and tumble, Times Square, all of that. And even like, whatever, Taxi Driver, Woody Allen. There's a certain way that it could be portrayed. What's it like living through that, though? Um, So I moved to New York in 1987 when meatpacking was literally meatpacking. Yeah. You know, when Times Square was still dirty and grimy and full of porn and full of junkies and hookers and pimps and everything. And I think that it felt authentic. In the moment. Yes. It just felt like, oh, this is New York. And it wasn't scary to me. Uh, Certainly there were parts of New York City where I was like, let's get the fuck (laughs) out of here. But... It just felt like, oh, okay, there were very few surprises, put it that way. You know, you learn things all the time. You're like, oh, shit, I've never seen such a high pile of garbage. (laughs) I've never seen so many rats, you know, stuff like that. Someone took a shit on the sidewalk. (laughs) And I watched. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think... New (laughs) York. Welcome to the Empire State. Uh, I think that the experience, again, of what might have been... um, dirty about it, so to speak, was not that daunting to me because I was exhilarated. You know, again, just the energy and the diversity. I mean, if you sit at the corner of St. Mark's and 3rd Avenue, in five minutes, with three light changes, you're going to see probably 30 different nationalities every different color of person how many different languages will you hear hear spoken and how many different faiths will you see crossing before you that is amazing to me and that's why i chose i knew that i would not raise my children in any other city mm. i mean don't you guys because you were born and raised here both of you well right? we were outside of uh we were like 30 minutes north westchester, westchester. okay yeah. Yeah. but well, we spent a lot here, of time yeah. This, yeah. Mm-hmm. right i mean don't you feel do either of you have children no no don't the apartment's you, too small. Okay. <laughs> Don't you feel like you have... Well, first of all, aren't you proud to be New Yorkers? Yes. Yes. And don't you feel like you have a certain edge that others don't? Because I certainly feel that with my children. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, edge, guts. Um, grit. Grit, yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and drive. Yes. That I don't think exists everywhere else. Uh, yes. uh, that being in the industry that we're in, yeah. there's a lot of pull to L.A. Yeah. And we think we can kill it in a, uh, seven days, ten days when we go out there. Yeah. But if we lived out there, it wouldn't be... I think it would lose it. Yeah. I think it would be like this thing where you end up being as laid back as everybody else there. Yeah. It gets a little bit dull. And yeah. if, if and when you have children, mm-hmm. would you want to raise them in New York? If I could afford it. <laughs> well, well, yes, the money, the money is always a factor. Look, I yeah. was broke as fuck when I was raising my kids. You know, I was a single mother. Yeah. But even with the financial considerations, I didn't think, um, let me move, you know, somewhere more affordable because I would, I would suffer the sacrifices of not, my kids never had their own bedroom. Mm-hmm. 
I could never afford a three bedroom in New York. Um, but I would, I would make those sacrifices in order to have kids who are New Yorkers. Mm. At this point, do you consider yourself a New Yorker? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I moved here in 87. It's, you know, it's uh, 2019. So I've been here for 32 years. Right. I was 22 when I moved. So I absolutely consider myself a New Yorker. I think I've considered myself a New Yorker for a while. Yeah, that's like, so our parents um, considered themselves like Southerners. Like they're from, they're from D.C. Mm-hmm. They uh, met in New York and raised us and lived in the city. What are your parents' names? Uh, Marjorie and Steve. Hi, Marjorie and Steve. You raised two good boys and the bathroom is very clean. (laughs) (laughs) There's a third, too, his twin brother. Oh, and your twin brother. I don't know how clean his bathroom is, but these two boys are very Uh, clean. Thank you very much. Um, But they, uh, you know, after our dad retired and uh, our mom was was done working and Mm -hmm. raising us and everything, they were like, they met some people down south, and they were like, I love the vibe down there, and they built their dream house in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, and nice. that is when they really like found themselves. It wasn't like necessarily, and they loved the city too, by the Understood. way, but it wasn't like they considered themselves like Washingtonians. They right. just, there's something, vibrations really like hit them in the mountains yeah. of a state far, yeah. far away, Yeah, and that, that was true to them. Exactly. It's different for everybody, right? I mean... It takes a very specific constitution to make it in New York. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, it's not for it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, yeah. So when you do move here in '87, you start going out to venues, yeah, like CBGBs, yeah, um, the Ritz, the Ritz. So yeah, the Ritz Hall. is now Webster, Webster Hall. Webster Hall. Okay. Yeah. You also talk in your book about uh, ending up at a show at the Ritz, and it's at least one of the Ramones. Was it Joey? I thought it was Johnny. Oh, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. But okay. yes, it was Joey. Okay, Joey. Yeah. <laughs> Did you expect when you moved to New York to be around all of these artists and just casually run into, you know, one of these famous people? I thought that I would. And, you know, the person, one of the people that I most wanted to run into, obviously, pre all of the stuff that we found out, was Woody Allen. I was a yeah. huge fan of his films. And I just, I had these fantasies of like, oh, I'm going to walk down the, and I've been here for 32 years. I've never seen really? Woody Allen, ever. Really? Um, so I kind of had this romantic fantasy that I would run into famous people. You obviously um, never went to go see him play clarinet at like the Carlisle. At the, at, yeah. No, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or that's not really a, running into him. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> right, that's, that's like following him. tracking yeah. him down, yeah. going to Elaine's every night or yeah. something. Like climbing in through his window. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that is how you find someone. Yeah. Um, so... I did, yeah, I kind of expected that I would run into famous people. I certainly didn't know that I would be working with the strata of famous people that I worked with, yeah. the, ta- the level of talent. Yeah. You've had an incredible life. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, you worked with Paul Simon. I did. So you started working with him, and you, and you talk about how the world that he was able to show you was so yeah. just yeah. foreign. Just completely just foreign. Just completely foreign. Yeah, just like no, a, a, like another galaxy i'd never known anybody wealthy so i knew people that were upper middle class that had nice big houses in vancouver i never met wealth so i didn't i'd never knew that what a personal assistant was (laughs) i didn't know you know there was this guy that used to work at armani and he would literally just bring a stack of 
cashmere sweaters for Paul to look at. I never <laughs> knew that this existed, right? And so Sonia Chang, God rest her soul, a Korean American, she be, she you know she was his personal assistant, was one of my men, was one of my mentors. She introduced me to this world because I would kind of go around and do errands with her. Went to the store up here. Isn't Prate- is Pratesi still up here? I don't think so. So there's this nothing pr- is still here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah. There was a store called Pratesi where they we have an Equinox, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Whole, Whole Foods. Yeah, Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. There was this place up here called Pratesi, and I think it was on Amsterdam, and they had the most exquisite sheets. Like, I didn't know what a thread count was. <laughs> I didn't know that Egyptian cotton was a thing, right? <laughs> so there's that, and then he had this tremendous house on Montauk, this amazing place on Central Park West. Um, and yeah, I was like, I felt like Forrest Gump. I was like, wow, <laughs> is this people really live this way? This is incredible. It yeah. was amazing. Did you find him to be a man of the people, down to earth. So down to earth. Regular. Oh my God. In the his most... cashmere sweater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Look, as... With his assistance trailing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, oh my God, he was so down to earth. Um, he was quiet. He was witty. Um, and he's just this, you know, he's an astronomical talent, right? I mean, I think he's one of the 10 greatest songwriters of the 20th century. And... He was just always really present, which I think is really impressive, right? Because you could imagine that Paul Simon, now when I worked with him, he was coming off of Graceland, which is yeah, just yeah, yeah. So there are a million things going on, right? You're thinking about your tour, you're thinking about the next album you're going to do and everything. And the time that I was fortunate enough to spend with Paul, he was extremely present. He is insanely smart, like so incredibly smart, super well read. Were you awed by his smarts? Yes, I was awed by his smarts. And I've been around a lot of smart motherfuckers. Mm. I was awed by his smarts. You're a smart motherfucker. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I was I was in awe, truly. Did you meet Lauren Michaels at any point? That's a really good question. Did I meet I'm sure I met Lauren. So my mentor, Michael Austin, um, his father is Mo Austin, the greatest record man of all time, who, mm-hmm. as you know, founded Reprise Records with um with Frank Sinatra and went on to run Warner was a chairman of Warner Brothers Records. Yep. Mo and Lorne and Michael, they are still very, very close to this day. So I am sure I have met Lorne. I'm sure he wouldn't remember me. <laughs> but you also don't remember him. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty dope. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm very aware of him. Um, did you go to the Central Park concert that Paul Simon did? I did not. When was that? Well, they, that was he had soon a couple, after. I think. Right? I, yeah. I, uh, no, I don't think I went to that one. Hmm. But I know that Paul, Simon and Garfunkel I saw in Vancouver. I think it might have been the first concert I went to, and I wept. Wow! I literally I wept. You wait. So you saw him grown up. Yeah. And ended up coming to New yeah, York. Yeah, and I was and, a huge and fan. Did you yeah. tell him? You know what? I don't know if I ever Paul. Yeah. I saw <laughs> yeah. Him. He's a loyal listener. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've seen. Um, you know, all these different sides of New York mm. and all of a sudden you're going to Yankee games and Paul yeah. Simon's showing up at your apartment and playing Scrabble. Yeah. And, Winning. And that's, and that's, but that's a, that's Did a he re- cheat? rematch. He, I so wish he cheated so I could tell the story that Paul Simon had to cheat making words. <laughs> no, he did not cheat. But, and, and by the way, so, okay, so you're not only working with him, but he doesn't let you down. He's not like a jerk. Oh yeah, no. Where and a lot of plenty, people could be. Yes. Yeah. You all, the three of us here have met plenty of famous people. For sure. And a whole bunch of them are fucking cocksuckers. And what a relief that he wasn't. Yes. 
And did you think then that the bar had been set there and that's it? You're just, everyone's going to be Oh, that's a really wonderful. interesting question. Um, I probably and thoughtful. did. I, I, you know what? I, uh, I've never thought about that before, but probably, yeah. Because how could I not? He's the first super famous person I, famous person I meet and he's super famous, you, right? Yeah. And he's not an overnight sensation at this point. He's already been making, you know, he's made millions and millions, sold millions and millions of records for so long. When'd you get let down? Not by him, but... Uh, when did I get let down? Huh. When you walked in the door to our apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually remember because I think what happened was as I started to be around more famous people and artists, I think kind of naturally the bar started to get lower. Yeah. You know, but the other thing is, you know, Paul Simon is Paul Simon, so he doesn't have fuck all to prove, right? Whereas a lot of the artists that I was interacting with, they were still on the come up. And even if they were big, they, they didn't have 20 years and millions of records sold behind them that they could just, you know, be very confident about their talent and their accomplishments. Mm. Um, you know, I think that in general, I have been fortunate enough that my interactions with artists have been very, very positive, but I also frankly think that's about my energy and what I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. When was the first time you met Chris Lighty? I met Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, um, 80, in 90 maybe, probably in 1990 when I was working at Jive and you know, A Tribe Called Quest were signed to Jive and he was managing them and I was sitting in a little booth with Ali Shaheed Muhammad and Chris passed by and actually I'd already met Chris so I might have met him as early as 88 or 89 but didn't really interact with him, maybe 89. Um, and he was just, you know, Chris was probably 6'2 and he was big and strong and he carried that with him, you know? And he was really imposing and intimidating. And I found him really, really arrogant. And I think a lot of people had that impression of him. And he could be that, no question. But then we became friends. How long a process was that to becoming friends? Um, it wasn't that long because I... <laughs> I just wore him down. Like, one, you know, it's kind of like with Joey Ramone. You know, I walk up to Joey Ramone and I say, hi, I'm Sophia Chang. You're Johnny Ramone, aren't you? And he's like, no, I'm Joey. And I'm going, fuck. You know, and I think that, you know, Michael Austin, my my mentor says, you know, Sophia's like a heat-seeking missile. Just point her in the right direction and she'll get there faster than anybody else. And so once I had it in my mind, after Shahid was like, Sof, he's a good guy. You should get to know him. Once I had that as a goal, I knew that I wanted to do that. And I think I just wore him down. And, it, and it's not like there was a lot of resistance. Not to me personally. He's just, he was just not that, he was not necessarily a warm and fuzzy guy. Mm -hmm. Jive Records um, was, for a lot of people who may not know now, um, it was a humongous label and a humongous power in, in hip hop specifically. And we're very close with, with Bun B. And mm. um, he, Bun, I love Bumby. He's the best. UGK was was a fascinating case in that they were killing it independently um, throughout Texas and the South. And um, when they partnered with Jive, it was, um, I think, as as maybe not specifically like on their terms, 
but um, it was it was a big move in retrospect. Um, what do you remember about UGK in those days? I remember the people. You know, that's I, I, it's it's what I am most um, attached to because it's the most personal experience. You know, I just remember that they were funny and easygoing and really, really open. You know, they were really, really open to me. And um, I just remember laughing and feeling comfortable, feeling really comfortable. Yeah. Um, they may have liked you. They may not have liked um, other people at Jive mm -hmm. or, or certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, did you? Every artist in every label. Uh -huh. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I've never heard an artist be like, I love my label. <laughs> Everybody here is so great. Nobody fucking says yeah. that. Paul and, Simon. And, and, yeah. And it's not necessarily. <laughs> actually, you know what? Paul would probably say that. Paul would probably say that. But it's not. And it's and it's. Th there's truth on both sides. Sure. Right. So, I understand that you can have frustrations as an artist, but if you've never actually worked within the system and known the machinations and, and the comings and goings and how, how that machine works, you can't really understand the complexities of it. Yeah, and right? it's interesting too, because young artists, especially now, they're like, oh yeah, the idea of a label makes so much sense, but only if you make it work. Only if you go in there and you partner in the right way and you use the machine like you should. Yeah. Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go in and they're just going to do everything. Yeah. But that's oh, I think, not how I it think works. a lot of young artists are like, fuck a label. That too. I think that too. Yeah. That too. And I think that sometimes that sentiment is right. I mean, look at Chance. Yeah. Sure. Right? Um, but, you know, the advice that I would give to artists that are signing to labels is that I'm old enough and I, I have been working in the system long enough that I was there for the boon times i mean when cds came out sure yeah fucking charging 24 dollars for a cd and it's easier for to one make song than a really yeah yeah, right. yeah and it's that's right it's yeah. easier to make than a cassette right i mean people's expense accounts were massive yeah. you know everybody was flying first class oh, yeah. and everybody was taking everybody out for dinner and everything and then the internet happens and then everything implodes and then you have these mergers so when i was in the music business there were six major labels i don't want to name them like my memory is terrible. And now they're essentially three, right? right? You have Warner Brothers, you have Sony, and you have the Universal Music Group. We yes. love them all. Yeah. We love them all. <laughs> and, you know, as you can imagine, as these mergers happen, so you have John over here, and he does radio promo at label A. You have Jane over here, and she does radio promo over at label B. And then the merger happens. Well, they don't keep both those people. Right. <laughs> they keep one of them depending on whatever the, the calculus is. Maybe we keep John because he's got more power. Maybe we keep Jane because she's cheaper. Mm. But what they don't do is they don't get rid of many artists, right? Mm. So you now have one person with almost twice the fucking load of work. So what the artists out there have to understand is, unless you are massive, like Adele or Beyonce or Taylor Swift, you are not the priority. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked in a label system. I was just at Universal. The bandwidth is insane. Like the amount of work a product manager has, they might have 22 artists. Now, they're not all active at the same time. Right. But that's a lot. Yeah. Well, that's also, a fucking lot. everybody pretty much is active now because of the internet. So oh, it's that's like, true. And the pr so you have like, to be more yeah. prolific, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. And Universal, by the way, loves market share. <laughs> 
Do they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean UMG in general or specific labels? Well, there are specific labels like um, Republic and cer- certain ones have big signs that like champion their their rank in, in market share. And oh. that's the point. Just like let's sign as many kids who have a single oh, out and let's just like flood it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, artists have to understand that they are not necessarily the priority and that they should understand how to work the building and work a team and how to be gracious. Also, just because be a fucking nice person. <laughs> you know, like I heard this story about a rapper. I wish I remembered who it, who it was at Columbia. And this intern was a really big fan and had made a flyer and was so excited. And had stayed up all night making this flyer, so excited to impress this rapper. And they showed it to him and he looked at it and he threw it on the floor. Now, imagine that you're a 19, 20, 21 year old intern and talk about being disappointed. Yeah, right. Right? And so you're a massive fan of this artist and you work your ass off and you make this thing. And even if it's not good, wouldn't you just be gracious and say, hey, this is great, thank you for all the work. But this motherfucker completely just erased all the work and completely belittled another human being. And that person that he belittled could be the president of a record company. For sure. Right? And again, that's a cynical look at it. But just at the human level, it is amazing to me that artists can be so incredibly arrogant you're talented, but you're still a person. Yeah. And you would exist within a human community. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting Daniel Craig recently. Daniel Craig, who gets paid how much does he, I don't know, how much is he getting paid? 30 bucks. Pay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's probably getting paid $30 million, yeah. right? To yeah. do. To, to be do, James Bond. To be James Bond. Yeah. He was so low key, so kind, asked about my children. Congratulations. Good luck on all... The, I mean, truly one of the kindest people I've ever met. I'm not even qualifying that with a celebrity. Yeah. Just a fucking person. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, so you are getting paid $30 million a movie to be James Bond, and you're really good at it, and you deserve the money. And you are talking to me, who's essentially a fan, mm-hmm. and you're making me feel like we're peers, and we're talking about our kids, right? Yeah. And then I see these idiots... So you have 20,000 fucking listens on SoundCloud and you think you're a fucking king? Right. No, you're a fucking asshole. Like, I wish people people had more perspective and understood that fame, first of all, ain't all it's cracked up to be. Hmm. And fame doesn't make you better. Right. (laughs) Than other people, right? So for the young artists out there who are signing to labels, be gracious. Say thank you. Yeah. I mean, if you knew how many artists didn't say thank you, it's stunning. It is stunning. They are so entitled Mm -hmm. because we have a culture of celebrity such that it we have created a culture of narcissism. Yeah. Right. And with that narcissism comes entitlement. And a lot of artists don't do the smart thing, which is to surround themselves with a team who can have some degree of critical distance. Mm. And can check them oh my God. when they're fucking up. Well, I mean, you guys see that all the time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. We welcome them into our apartment. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, you know, you're somebody who has worked with a lot of strong personalities. Mm-hmm. What people have been o- most open to criticism? All of them, because of me. 
I will take credit for that. I think that one of what all of my artists knew unequivocally was that I did everything in their best interest. I think that there are a lot of managers out there that want to get their dick sucked on the tour bus, that want to get free weed, that want to sit in, sit in the VIP and sit patrol. I don't give a shit about any of that. I've never smoked weed in my life. I can get laid on my own, right? So you and have not a even lot- on the tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so a lot, you have a lot of sycophants that are really afraid of getting kicked off the gravy train. Right. Right? And they don't want to lose access. And so they do whatever they can to keep their seat on that train. Nothing is worth that to me. Because I'll have another client if I want another client. What is much more meaningful to me is the trust. So if I'm talking to an artist and I'm saying something that I know is a difficult conversation, and I've had them with virtually every artist that I've ever worked with, I know the risk that I'm taking. And I know that most of these guys have big egos. Um, But I also trust our friendship and the power of our relationship enough to know that this will not break the camel's back. Mm. Right. So they might respond. They might respond defensively. At first, we all do when someone says, hey, Sophia, you know, I think you fucked up like what? You know, I've learned not to do that anymore. But I think that they because they trust me so deeply, they know she wouldn't say this for any other reason except for me. Right. And the truth of the matter is it has this really interesting effect that is is almost counterintuitive. And that is that it makes them respect me more, right? So they're like, wow. Soph loves me and cares about me and respects me enough to tell me something that is difficult. I actually applaud that. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. So do you think that you and Chris shared that same viewpoint in dealing with big artists and big egos and big entourages and big money? Yeah, absolutely. Except Chris was way better equipped to deal with that than me. You know, if if 50 Cent had come to me and asked me to manage him and said, you're going to make millions of dollars with me, so I wasn't equipped to do that. I didn't, number one, I didn't have the connections. Number two, I'm, I don't want my office to get shot up. I don't know how to handle that. You know, Chris Lighty knew how to handle that. And knew that that was a reality. I, I mean, knew that yeah, that right. was a didn't reality. Didn't want his office shot yeah, up. Know, That's yeah, right, didn't I want it shot up. Yeah, yeah. But right, but of course, but he understood. You know, Chris was, comes from a crew called the Violets from yeah. the South Bronx. They did plenty before he came into the music business. So yes, uh, Chris was always really frank with his artists, but stylistically, we were also really, really different. Like Chris, from what I understand, would walk into a conference room and curse people out. I would never do that. I'll curse you out in my own way. (laughs) And so how we are similar is that we were very forthright, very forthcoming, and very frank. But Chris could be a bully. And I never never bullied anybody. We're just different that way. You didn't find that effective for how you approached things. Exactly. That just, it, it just didn't really work for me. We're, yeah, we're just wired differently. That said, you know, I will get in your grill. I will call you out. I will pat my fist on the table. I will absolutely do all of those things, but just not in the same way as he did. Is silence effective? Is silence effective? Let's talk about context, right? So if I'm on a call 
with a bunch of people, or let's say I'm in a meeting and somebody says something and everybody knows that I have an opinion, but I fall back. You know what the fuck I'm <laughs> I'm Sophia Chang. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm smart. I am witty. My mind moves at the speed of sound. If I'm not saying anything, it's not because of a shortage of opinions. When do you think you figured it out? That? No, just the industry and like how you can move yeah, the pieces. Like who you are and, and how you fit in. I don't think I figured that out until I came back after Kung Fu. So I work right at Paul Simon. I work at Atlantic. I work at Jive. I have my own cons consulting group. And then I leave the industry for 12 years, essentially, because I hook up with a Shaolin monk and run his temple and have two children. Normal right? shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you did yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's, it's so banal. <laughs> yeah. um, so when I came back, the first major label system that I was in was Columbia because Raphael Sadiq's what I consider is possibly his magnum opus, although Jimmy Lee might be that, the mm -hmm. way I see it, which is his homage to Motown and Stax and mm -hmm. the Philly sound. Um, I worked that Columbia building top to bottom. And I think at that point, so in 2008, I'm 43, right? And I've been training in Kung Fu <laughs> for a long time at yeah. this point. And, I have, and I'm a mother. And I have a much stronger sense of who I am and where my power resides. So even though as a child I knew that, being within a system and within a corporation, being able to express that, I think came to me probably then, much mm. later, mm. much later than my jive days. What was the first time you crossed paths with the RZA like? So I heard his music before I met him because all of us in the industry got the demo tape with Protect Your Neck, Tears, and Method Man on it. Couldn't sign because he had that famous non-exclusive deal. And then I got the Gravediggers demo. And I loved... I think it's called 1-800-SUICIDE. I love that song. And I wanted to sign them, and so I set up a meeting, and I just remember thinking, oh, you're so tall. <laughs> and if you meet Wu-Tang, you're like, oh my God, everybody's so tall. You know, you meet other people, like you're like, oh, really, television, you know, put six inches on you. You meet Wu-Tang, you're like, holy shit, you guys are really tall. Um, Except for Raekwon. Exactly. <laughs> Ray's, yeah, Ray, but Ray is larger than life right. in so yeah, many yeah, other yeah. wonderful ways. Um, he was, uh, this is going to sound funny, but he was energetic and subdued at the same time. Um, but the thing that really struck me was how smart he was. Not just smart, but how visionary he was. He was so clear on everything. And, you know, I talked to Raekwon about this recently. I said, you know, what struck me as different about Wu-Tang Clan was that you guys believed you belonged in the room. You believed that you were going to be big. You believed that you would cross over and become executives. And I can't say that of every artist that I've worked with. You know, they had a, this incredible confidence and certainty about their futures. And, you know, in the early days, that was absolutely set by Rizzo. It was completely his vision. And I just remember, yeah, thinking that's one of the smartest motherfuckers I've ever met. <laughs> what did you know about uh, their deal with Steve Rifkin? We all knew everything about the deal because yeah. it was such a big deal that, yeah. you know, so essentially for those of you that you don't, that for anybody out there that doesn't know, if a label signs a group, it is an exclusive deal, meaning they have the option should any of the artists choose a solo career, 
they have the option of releasing that album. They don't have to, they're not obligated to, but they have the option. So imagine if you sign Destiny's Child and you have a non-exclusive deal, and then Beyonce goes and becomes Beyonce, right? Nobody wants that to happen. So what Except RZA, Columbia. Columbia really wants that to happen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> RZA asked, so RZA asked for a non-exclusive deal. Now remember, there are nine guys, and we all already know they're going to be huge. We weren't like, well, we're not really <laughs> sure. We knew. So nine guys wait i have the potential of nine guys selling millions of albums you know you do the math and it's exponential right and um steve rifkin at loud records gave him a deal because steve had a lot of independence because he ran his own label so he wasn't necessarily he didn't necessarily have to answer to anybody else and he took a gamble and the gamble paid off so did you think that it was smart at the time or did you think that it was foolish no i think i think we all we all knew that it was smart Mm -hmm. because we all knew okay so what happens so meth goes to def jam Mm -hmm. right but he gets cuban links Mm -hmm. so but he also still has wu-tang clan yeah so he took a calculated risk. Steve was, you know, I don't think Steve flipped a coin. I think Steve was very, you know, he's a very smart guy. I think he, he knew exactly the risk that he was undertaking. And I certainly don't think that he would say, that was a stupid deal, I shouldn't have done that. And for the rest of us in the industry, I think it was broadly agreed that um, it was a smart move. And frankly, some of us might have even thought, I wish I could have done it, but I can't within, within the constraints of this framework. And I honestly don't know if anybody else has ever been given a non-exclusive deal. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what else happened after RZA did that. Every fucking <laughs> rap group that came through every door to A&R people, they were like, we want a non-exclusive deal. Yeah, yeah. Right? So then he has completely changed the landscape of deal making. That's incredible for an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we watched Of Mikes and Men. Mm-hmm. And which is a phenomenal documentary, mm-hmm. and one of the the sad parts of Wu Tang's sort of dissolution is mm-hmm. that half the group got huge, and the other half was trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be in that sort of dynamic? I was never really in that dynamic because you know to be clear, I never managed Wu Tang Clan, right. so I didn't have to be in the midst of that. I think that. Obviously, when you have nine MCs, not everybody is going to have the same level of popularity. And so I kind of saw what you saw. I mean, there was stuff in that documentary that I didn't know. All that stuff about ODB, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't know a lot of that. Remember, I left the music business in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of that stuff that transpired, I might have known anecdotally, but I wasn't up close and personal with it. I think that it is disappointing in watching the documentary to watch that there were that there were fractures, but if you see them on stage, I don't know. I mean, I saw Wu Tang like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, and they still put on an incredible, incredible show. Now, if they really despised each other, like people might be led to believe, they wouldn't go on the road with each other. Right. I think. I think the. One of the most heartbreaking lines of the documentary was uh, Divine and and Raekwon, that they had a childhood friendship, and because some deal didn't go... The way that Divine wanted. Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you think about childhood friendships, how many people are you friends with that you were friends with in childhood? Well, I ha- I'm friends with a lot, but that, yeah. I'm a Jeff rarity. Jeff is sort of the exception. Yeah. Okay, but My, you're right. You're the I'm, anomaly. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. Right. Yeah. Um, 
I think, I frankly think that this notion of BFF, we're best friends forever, I think it's kind of a hallmark notion. I think it's a <laughs> stupid notion. I think it's a little bit dangerous. You know, I also talk in my memoir about thinking that couples have to be together forever. It's great when it happens, right. but that expectation I think is really unrealistic. So, uh, you know, when I, I'm not, I'm not friends with anybody that I knew before I was probably 14. And those are tenuous. Those are just the people that I call when I go back to Vancouver. I'm not in constant touch. Right. With it was them. just a happenstance of where you happen to be born. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like you're so not friends with everybody from your freshman year. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Have you guys seen this movie, Good Boys? No. It is. So it's essentially it's a coming of age story, and it's about three boys that are going into the sixth grade together, which means they're going to middle school together. And it, it, this is exactly what they talk about. And I found it. I saw it twice. Um, I took both my kids to see it on separate occasions. I first of all, I laughed so hard I cried. Yeah. I mean, I was screaming, laughing in the movie theater. Shout out to my boy, little Rel, who has who has the scene that is so incredible. Um, but what I found really smart about the movie was that they dealt with this notion at that age, meaning, oh shit. Like even at 11, they kind of have this realization, you know, they're like beanbag boys forever. You know, they've got a crew, they all play the same game and everything, and then they get hormonal and they let girls and everything. And so they introduce this notion, which I don't know that I've ever seen in a film before, but how how it treated this coming of age and with these boys understanding really early that the relationships, that the friendships might not last forever, I I found really, really touching, Mm. really sophisticated. And so in terms of Wu-Tang Clan and Divine saying that about Ray, I don't really remember that. I'm sure you guys remember it better than I do. Um, I, I think that none of us should be surprised if relationships don't maintain that intensity. Yeah. You know, when I first met Outcast, you know, I went down to Atlanta as soon as I heard Players Ball on the LaFace Christmas album, which came out, I think, in Christmas 93 or something. Mm-hmm. And I met all of them. And they were all sleeping on Rico Wade's floor, <laughs> right? And Everybody from Dungeon Family. All the Dungeon Family, yeah, yeah. right? So yeah, I was like, you, everybody, right, when you say right. all of Outkast, I'm like, there's only two of them. Yeah, organized Noise. So you have Outkast, you have yep. Goody Mob, you have EJ the Witch Doctor, you have yep. Organized Noise. And then they get successful and then they all have their own houses, and then they're all going on tour, and then they get married and have kids and everything. It's just a natural evolution that you don't spend as much time together. And it's okay. And it's okay. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. I don't remember the tone that Divine took, but um, I hope that everybody out there understands that, like you said, it's okay for you if, you know, somebody that you thought you were going to be best friends with forever, there's this poem called a reason to season a lifetime and i think it's really really smart it's essentially saying that some people are in our lives for a reason some for a season and some for a lifetime and the people that are in our lives for a lifetime there's so few Mm. so few Mm. so um when you traveled to china Hmm. um how mind-blowing and earth-shattering and game-changing was it for you it was all of those things to a really high degree because there were so many components to that. So I am, you know, my partner, my life partner is a 34th generation Shaolin monk. And so I'm going back to his home, so to speak. I am meeting his master. I'm meeting the abbot. I'm meeting his Kung Fu brothers. I am seeing where he, 
25 to 20. He spent 23 years of his life there, waking up at four in the morning, training, eating, training, and praying and studying 16 hours a day. So just that in and of itself is profound, right? And then I'm a martial arts fan and I'm a martial artist. So going to the Mecca, you know, Shaolin Temple is the Mecca of all martial arts. And we go there on the 1500th anniversary. <laughs> so that's all huge. It's a lot. And then the fact that we bring Rizzo. Mm-hmm. And imagine if it was that profound for me, imagine what that is for Rizzo, right? right? And he is the first artist in 1500 years ever to perform on the stairs at the at the at these beautiful huge legendary red doors of Shaolin Temple I created that moment How did you do that Well I introduced well I meet Wu Tang through Wu Tang I start watching kung fu movies I decide I want to train kung fu I meet Shi Yan Ming who's the Shaolin monk I bring Riza and Yan Ming together they become fast friends and I say hey you know what let's go to China let's make this pilgrimage and Riza was absolutely down like yeah so I want to go and I planned the whole thing I hired the tour you know I hired the uh, tour company and um, you know hired the videographer and everybody I essentially produced a tour but that moment, all of it, and I'm pregnant. I, you know, I do all of it to create this moment in history. But then the third level of all of this is that, oh my God, you know, I say that I brought Riza there, but I say in my memoir, ultimately it was him that brought me there. It's the first time, 90. So the first time I was in Asia was in Korea in 1995. Um, so then I, in 99, I'm in China. And it was so powerful to be there again with my partner who's a Shaolin monk and feeling like, oh my God, this, there's so much of this that resonates with me. Again, the energy and the, vib you know, the vibrations and the frequency, even though, I'm, even though I'm Korean and we're in China. But it is still this massive culture. And again, I'm training 15 hours a week at this point. And you bring over Riza, who, you know, couldn't come from a, a more different background than you, but you both connect in a very spiritual way. Um, what was it like to experience it through his eyes? That was amazing for the reasons that we all know, which is that he's one of... 10, one of 11 children raised by a single mother <laughs> in the projects of Staten Island. And one of his means of escape was Kung Fu movies. He calls his group the Wu-Tang Clan, which is named after Wu-Tang Mountain, a real mountain where Taiji is founded. He calls his home borough of Staten Island Shaolin. Now here we are, one of his best friends and his Shifu, his master, is a Shaolin monk. Here we are at Shaolin Temple. So it was almost surreal and because he and I are so close it was so rewarding for me because I got to enjoy it through his lens I got to feel it through his heart you know and just I mean seeing him at the top of Wu-Tang Mountain it's so beautiful the sky is so clear the clouds are there and you're a mile above the ground mm. and he just looked regal at home yeah, he absolutely looked like he'd arrived. No question. You got into the music business for, I, you know, I'm sure many reasons, but one of them probably had to be like personal. You were like, I love this music. I want to help people create. It's kind of the only reason, yeah. Well, did you ever consider that you would change people's lives? I don't think so. I don't think I thought about that. You mean the artists that I worked with? 
I don't think so. I think I just... Because you did. Worked. <laughs> no, I get it. I appreciate that. But there's that. something bigger. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean... Music lasts. I think... And I, it can help change lives as well. But, but right. that this guy from the projects of Staten Island... Right. Isn't just envisioning this. Mm-hmm. He's living it, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can give you know an artist a contract that can change the way that they live and the way that their family lives and their friends live and it goes on and on that's that's a that's a very underrated part of the music business that is really true and and meaningful um thanks i've never thought about it that way frankly i know that i did really really good work with my clients I know that I help them a lot. I know that I open their eyes to new possibilities. And yeah, I guess in so doing, I change their lives. Um, but they change mine too, you know? And they help teach me so much. You know, Joey Badass was interviewed recently with RZA. Uh, Angie Martinez was um, interviewing them. And she said, well, how did you guys meet? And Joey said, Shout out to Sophia Chang, you know, she who's been really instrumental in my career. She introduced us. Now, he didn't need to say that. But again, if you know artists, you would be amazed that he said that because, again, the most of them tend to be extremely narcissistic and like to think that they did it all themselves. Um, and I really, really appreciated that. That touched me really deeply. And I think that probably the artist that you that I worked with, if you spoke to them, they would say that. I had um, a really deep impact, not only professionally, but also personally, because I was very close. I was friends with all of my artists. So we didn't just talk about business. You know, obviously, if you spend any time around RZA, you're not just talking about business. You're talking about film. You're talking about books. You're talking about religion. You're talking about things going on in the world. And, you know, it's kind of like being in a room full of encyclopedias. Mm. Google it. (laughs) Being in a room full of Googles. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, being yeah. in Google. <laughs> yeah. How did being a mother change your life? I mean, being a mother, there are two things that you understand the moment that you give birth. One is that you would die for your child in a heartbeat. There's, there's, you know, you don't call your friends and ask. And the second is that you would kill for your child. And everything shifts. And your primal and your primary concern is the well-being of your children. So it means that every decision I have made since I gave birth on March 16th, 2000, has been about how will this benefit my children? That doesn't mean I made all the right decisions. I fucked up plenty. But in my calculation, you know, in considering my ROI, so to speak, the return has to be for my kids, right? Okay, so if I, um, if we move here, okay, we're going to move to this area because it has a really good public school that they're going to. If I'm going to take this job, okay, what's the trade-off here? I might make a ton of money, but it means I'm going to be away so much. Maybe that's not such a good idea. How about I take a little bit less money, but I get to spend the time and we get benefits, right? Decisions like that. Like I was just telling somebody yesterday that, you know, on on 3rd Avenue, south of 23rd Street, you know the 3rd Avenue is a two-way avenue. And what I used to do in crossing 3rd Avenue when, when I didn't have the light was that I would cross half of the avenue and then wait 
for the other cars to go by and then cross the rest of it. I would never fucking do that today because it's stupid and it's foolhardy, you know? When I was waiting for the train, I would stand right next to, if not on that yellow line. I hug the walls now. I can't, I can't do anything that could risk my well-being because my well-being is directly tied to my children's well-being. So everything changes. Everything changes. In some ways that are sacrifices, you make sacrifices. As a parent, there's no question about it. But you, I never regretted it. I never went, mm, what would my, I would have had more money. I would have had a bigger... You don't could have gone to the clubs. Right, exactly. <laughs> I could have, yeah, I could have been getting bottled service like with the, 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 the Spark- sprinklers, sparklers, yeah, sparklers yeah. on the champagne. Man, I want that life. No, not at all. It, it, it all changes for the better and everything is richer. And so just as you're saying, what was it like to experience... Um, mm-hmm. Wu-Tang and Shaolin through Riz's eyes, yeah. I now get to experience things through my children's eyes. Like going to take my son and his best friend to see good boys. And half of the delight for me was that we were all laughing so uproariously. And you create those moments for your children. What have you seen that you recognize of yourself in your children? Um, they're both really smart and smarter than me. My p- kids are so much smarter than me. They have Google. They have Google. <laughs> um, no, their inte- intellectual capacity is actually greater than mine. Uh, my son, how is he like me? So he is kinder and more generous and more empathetic than I am. He also, but what he gets from me is his winsome personality and his fearlessness in social situations. My son, from when he was like 13, 12 years old, I could just walk him into any room and he would just go up to anybody and start talking. My friends are like, oh, where'd he get that from? <laughs> my daughter, on the other hand, Jen Hong, she, my son is Jin Long, she is like me, she's got a bad temper. Um, but she is super focused and super disciplined. She's also incredibly smart. She's a much better student than I ever was. Like, she really enjoys school. And I'm like, you know what, sweetie? When I was 16, you know what I loved? Not school. Spray Boys. painting. Boys. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I never ran home to tell my mother what I was learning in U.S. history. Well, I was in Canada, Canadian history. Yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. Louis Riel, the Métis, whatever. <laughs> Snooze, you know? So what I see is, um, and also a blend of, me and their father you know their father is so centered and grounded and lives unequivocally and incessantly with the ethos of glass half full if not glass full all the time despite how much water is in it and my kids definitely have that i didn't learn that until i met their father and they've been raised with it so it's very different Hmm. um you know when you were first coming into the industry you were one of, I mean, you 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 were like the only um, minority of a minority yeah. of a yeah. yeah yeah. So, you know, what does it feel like now to see so many others who are you know? It's great. I mean, it's really seeing other Asians in hip hop, particularly women, is really a delight for me. Um. I think one of the things that I find dismaying about some of the people that I meet in hip hop, and this is not necessarily 
Asian people, but anybody who's not brown or black, meaning anybody who isn't actually their people didn't create the culture, right? So you're coming into somebody else's world is the, um, the sense of entitlement and the inability to acknowledge their privilege. So I'm a Korean Canadian college educated middle-class person. In no way could I ever say that my experience was the same as the men that I worked with. And I see a lot of people that love kind of living the lifestyle, but don't seem to care, have any empathy. You know, my friend Kieran Mayo, she's so brilliant. She used to be the editor-in-chief of Ebony. And she did this one cover, and it was, it was purely a graphic cover. It was white, and I think it had purple lettering on it. It was like handwriting, and it said, America loves black people. And then people was scratched out, and she wrote in culture above it. And I think that was really, really telling. And I think that that's what is the case for a lot of people in hip hop. Like, yeah, you love the culture because there's no greater, to me, no music that has been a greater cultural global force than hip hop. So you love all the things that go with it. And I do too. Love it. It's amazing. But if you don't have empathy for and curiosity about the people who are making the music that you are ultimately exploiting. You're making money off of it, and that's okay. But if you don't care about those people, it's a problem. You know, I tell the story about G Herbo in my, in my memoir. When I ran Pro Era Records, G Herbo was going to perform at, uh, I think it was Red Bull Festival in L.A. And his product manager, this white woman, I said, okay, it was my, my first ever marketing meeting. Right? And I'm going around the table, and I said, okay, so what's going on with G Herbo and going to L.A.? And she rolls her eyes and she goes, Herbo's not gonna go to LA until we move his mother out of the hood. She said it so casually, with disdain, and so dismissively, that I looked at her and I went, bitch, you're fired. Now I knew I had to fire her already because the guy that brought me in to run the company said the one person you're gonna have to fire immediately is this woman. But that one statement there was a nothing for her. It's a fucking throwaway for her. It made it so delicious when I saw her ass walk out the door. Now I knew why Herbo was. Yeah, there was context worried. to it because yeah. his he, his parents or his mom was living in a in yeah, a rough part of town. Exactly. Yeah. But she hadn't even. I said, did he? Did she ever ask you why you're worried? He's like, no, Sophie. She never asked me. And I'm thinking, look, I listen to Herbo's music. It's not for me. I'm a 54-year-old mother, I'm, you know, <laughs> but I listened to it because I wanted to know who I was working with. And I went to him and I was like, wow, you know, there's, kind of, there's a lot of anger here and there's a lot of pain here and, you know, what's going on? And he told me about how he grows up, where he lives, why is he concerned about his mother, why is he concerned about his little sister? And I cared. So I, I just don't, I find it really galling that people who are not black and brown can be in hip-hop and take one part of it, take the stuff that makes them cool, and they have this proximity to cool, but, but then not care about the human. Yeah. There is a human behind that music. There is a human, and sometimes that human could be in pain, who is expressing his or her pain and rage through the art that you're enjoying in the VIP or on the road. I just, I find that really infuriating. You have not held back in your book. Um, you know, I, I felt like I knew you without 
meeting you. Um, you are very open and honest and forthright and you curse a bunch. <laughs> and um, you tell a lot of stuff that a lot of people I don't think would. Who did you write this book for? This, I wrote my memoir and I hope, you know, I, I don't know that I wrote with somebody in mind, let me put it that way, but let me tell you who my hope responds to it. This is for anybody that has ever felt invisible, unheard, undervalued. Anybody who has ever been made to feel other or marginalized. Anybody who has ever told, no, 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 don't do that. Don't chase your dreams. Anybody who ever has the audacity to pursue their passion and tell their stories and move through the world according, you know, to the beat of their own drum. And don't listen to the dominant culture that don't allow white patriarchy, cis patriarchy, to determine who or what they should be. You know, what I always say is I hope women in particular, women of color, listen to my memoir and they are further pushed to mine, not mind, mine their power and see their beauty. Because if we go out there, I'm raising a, an Asian girl, right? So she's been fetishized and eroticized and exoticized, but she hasn't been told that she's brilliant or powerful. I have to tell her that, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm raising this girl and I didn't have me. I fucking wish there was a Sophia Chang when I was a kid. So I'm really, it's really about being the most authentic version of yourself. And for many of us, that's not easy to find. You know, especially as a child of Asian immigrants, doctor, lawyer, scholar, dentist, right? Well, what if you want to, what if you want to be an artist? Those avenues aren't necessarily open to us. And I understand why your parents, you know, they migrate and they leave everything behind and they make these tremendous sacrifices. Well, why didn't do that to come here so that you could fucking be a basket weaver? Right? I, I, I completely understand it from both perspectives. But I really hope that when people listen to my memoir, they will feel inspired and empowered to live a more fulsome and 360 degree version of themselves and be more authentic to who we are. Because I think at the point that we are being the truest to ourselves, and it's different for everybody, then I think we're better people and I think we make it a better world. What, what drew you to Reese Witherspoon to help put this out? So one of my closest friends, a Korean-American woman, incredibly smart, another smart motherfucker, Charlotte Cohen, she runs digital at Hello Sunshine. So last February, we, were, we had breakfast when I went to L.A. I try to see her every time I go out there. She's really one of my closest friends. Like She always gives me advice on, I'm taking this job, what do you think? And so she said, what are you up to when we were catching up? And I said, look, I'm writing a memoir, um, and I'm really determined to do this. And she said, well, you know, Sophia, that, that's something we might want to look at. And I said, really? Because as far as I knew, Hello Sunshine and Reese were only in television and film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was before she could tell me that they were doing this really interesting um, partnership with Audible. And so I, you know, 
having somebody on the inside, so to speak, having Charlotte there who knows me so well, right? Knows my children, knows me, knows my life, loves me and respects me. And again, she too is the first gen, right? Mm -hmm. Child of Korean immigrants. Having that um, commonality of experience, but also the, the relationship was really enticing to me because my book deal was actually competitive. And I chose to go with Audible and Hello Sunshine because number one, I wanted to be in business with Hello Sunshine and Reese and Charlotte and also with Audible because I knew that I could create something that would, it's, I mean, you guys, six days, my audiobook is gonna come out and it's gonna change the game. You've heard it, you know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I'm going to change the world with my story and I'm going to change the audiobook game with, with my audiobook. There's no doubt. Are there plans to do more visual stuff with it? Visual stuff? Yeah. As in like, you know, they have these TV and film sort of like relationships. Oh, right. Um, I've actually been approached. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Long before there was ever anything to read, I had two film directors and a studio executive say to me, I want to do a film about your life. I was like, wow, really? They're like, yeah, we just think you're fascinating. Um, So there is definitely going to be some sort of on-screen adaptation. Uh, I am developing a scripted television show that will be a version of this. It's not, it's not reality. It's not a doc. Although I think there's a doc here somewhere too, you know, I'll tell you what you guys, after having helped Incredibly talented men tell their stories for essentially 30 years. At 50, I finally realized, oh, fuck, I've got a great story to tell. <laughs> yeah. And once I decided, I'm going to tell my story, and I'm going to abdicate my anonymity, and I'm going to be okay with being famous, because I'm about to be famous. I never wanted it. I know what that price is. Once I decided to step into the spotlight and tell my story, there are no end of ways to tell my story. I had a woman come to me last year and say she wanted to write a children's book about me. I think that there are so many versions of my story and I will only tell it and am only telling it because I understand that in so doing, I can help others. Are you still, or how much of you is still that young girl from Vancouver, British Columbia? I think very little of me, you know, um, I am still a minority. I am still on the margins. Obviously that doesn't change, but still smart, still smart. Um, still very confident, but I think that how outspoken I am and how public I'm willing to be is different than that girl. And, and he, and again, even, Five, six years ago, I wasn't doing what I'm doing now. I mean, if you think about it, I'm a 54-year-old Korean-Canadian single mother of two teenagers with this haircut, (laughs) out here raising hell, kicking over the apple cart, pounding my fist on the table, not giving a fuck, and telling the world in no uncertain terms, and I mean this from my core, that I am the baddest bitch in the room. That's radical to me. Because you've never seen anybody like Sophia Chang before, and you never will again. So one of the hopes of my, for me, with, this, with my memoir is that people just 
have a different idea of what Asian women can be, Asian American, Asian Canadian women. I don't want you to be like me. I just want you to be more of yourself and start to crack open people's imaginations on who we are and what we look like and how we move and how we talk. Yeah. Well, they've never seen someone like you and they've never heard someone like you. So uh, yeah. thank you so much for stopping thank by. Thank you for having me. It's Congratulations such a pleasure. On yeah. Thank you very much. I'm very excited. And I'm going to win a Grammy. And thank you for letting us know that Paul Simon ripped up an intern's flyer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, he's such That's a right. mean guy. <laughs> Thanks so much. He was dear. a rapper. <laughs> Surprise. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, if you want to find out more about us, I'm Eric, you're Jeff. Together, we are It's The Real, no apostrophe, no spaces. People want to find out more about this podcast. It's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real. If people want to find out more about what's going on with us, where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. Go to itsthereal.com slash shop. Support your boys over here at It's The Real. You can always listen to all of our old episodes and our new ones. Go to any streaming platform, including the one you're listening to this podcast on right now. iTunes, Google Play, whatever. Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox, Google Play. You mentioned Google Play. YouTube. YouTube.com slash It's The Real. You can also find us on Twitter at It's The Real, Facebook at It's The Real, and Instagram at It's The Real. Jeff. Now is the time when we like to shout people out. This is, after all, the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of people that we could shout out right now. There's a bunch. And I think that now's the time to do it. Okay. So it's only appropriate that we do our shout outs right now. I want to shout out the Fucks With It blog, yeah. fuckswithit.com, who wrote such a great entry about us on their seven podcasts. That, that they want people to listen to Shout right to now. Them. So I just want to read what they wrote. Yeah. Uh, they said, Comedians, rappers, podcasters, and real-life brothers Eric and Jeff Rosenthal are It's The Real. The crown gem in their wide-spanning creative endeavors is their hip-hop podcast, A Waste of Time. Recording in their New York apartment, the duo proved to be perfect hosts. Balancing their humor and hip-hop knowledge for episodes that are always engaging with some of hip-hop's most important figures, both in the spotlight and those behind the scenes. Despite their humorous approach, they can tactfully move between making jokes at one point and getting serious on issues spanning from surviving cancer, to racism, politics, and more. Man. Guests range from rap royalty to up-and-coming stars, producers, and DJs, as well as key figures in the music industry. Standout episodes include... Take notes. Mm-hmm. Number 215, The Return of A-Track. Number 204, the co-founder of The Vader, Rob Stone. And number 169, J. Cole's manager and Dreamville president, Ibrahim Hamad. That's just a small sample of the 260-plus episodes that A Waste of Time has to offer. Don't let the name fool you. Listening to this podcast is definitely time well spent. That is really really meaningful and we only had to pay two thousand dollars <laughs> to get them to write it thank you guys shout out to fucks with the blog we really really appreciate that and shout out to everybody else who is named alongside of us dope podcasts all jeff i would like to shout out everybody who has checked out that new episode of two jews and two black dudes review the movies 
Lean On Me, the Morgan Freeman classic available on Netflix right now. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. It's up on all streaming services. Search for Two Jews and Two Black Dudes. Review the movies. It is there now and forever. Anything else? Uh, buy a t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> it's thereal.com slash shop. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys next week. Grrr. Guns out, guns out. All I hear is